This is the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast, episode 9. Welcome to another edition of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen. You can visit the podcast website at conversationsinspeech.com. Today I'm featuring my second episode on AAC. It is going to be topic specific. We're going to be talking about ongoing assessments in AAC. And I am happy to welcome Dr. Tracy Kovac to the program. I first heard of Dr. Kovac. I saw her speak at my state's association uh, convention back in 2011 and then got to know her better both professionally and personally at the Pittsburgh AAC Language Seminar both last year and this year. In this conversation, you'll hear us refer to four competencies based on the work of Dr. Janice Light, and there will be a link to Dr. Light's most recent journal article on the website. We'll be referring to that. And we'll get to the conversation with Dr. Kovac. Thanks for listening. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. I have with me Tracy Kovac on the line. How are you doing, Tracy? I'm good. Thanks, Jeff. How are you? Good. Um, I wanted you just to, you know, because coming up with an introduction is a little tricky because you wear a lot of hats, don't you? I do. And so maybe you can tell the audience about all those hats that you wear in your professional life. Okay, well, some hats are a little worn and some are fairly new, but um, in general, I'm a speech-language pathologist and have for more than 35 years focused in the area of um, individuals, particularly children with severe communication impairments, and particularly in the area of augmentative and alternative communication. And I won't go way, way, way back to the history of what we used back in the dark ages (laughs) in terms of augmentative communication systems, but um, suffice it to say that things have changed a great deal over the last 30 years. Um, So that's been my primary focus. I've worked um, in the school systems, um, in clinics, outpatient clinics. I spent 25 years at the Children's Hospital in Denver in the outpatient clinic and directed the augmentative communication program there. I've done private practice and I've done consulting and presenting. Um, I've also taught the AAC course at the University of Colorado in Boulder and I'm currently teaching some courses at Metro State University of Denver related to individuals with communication and other disabilities. So um, I'm enjoying a little bit more uh, flexibility now that I left the Children's Hospital after 25 years and can do a little bit more in terms of private practice and consulting. Sure. And you're, you're out on the road a lot speaking about uh, ongoing assessments uh, with, with AAC users. And you're about to go off, uh, this is July that we're having this conversation, you're going in August to Australia. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that? Yes, I'm delighted to be a part of what's called the Agoski Tour. Every other year in Australia, um, they do a, a big tour where you go to various different um, cities across the country. So I'll be going to Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne, Perth, um, something else I can't remember. Oh, Brisbane. Um, and talking about ongoing assessment and, um, 
for the augmentative group in Australia that's a, a national chapter of the ISAC, International Society for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. It's called AGOSCI, the Australian Group of Severely Communicatively Impaired Individuals. Oh, so they're a subgroup of ISAC. They are. They're a national chapter of ISAC. Oh, I didn't know that. Australia, Yeah, Australia has been very um, proactive and active many years in the area of augmentative and alternative communication and and very early on developed a a national chapter in that area and affiliated with ISAC. Okay. And you'll be going there to speak about ongoing assessments, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, I wanted to start this conversation with just asking you how you became interested in this area of AAC. Well, um, about 15 years ago um, at the Children's Hospital, our department and our particular division in the area of AAC um, came under the scrutiny of what was happening across the board, I think, in terms of therapy services with regard to reimbursement issues. And people were saying to us, okay, so how many years are you going to be seeing these kids for therapy? And if we have to limit our resources, what is that going to mean for you? And what evidence do you have that you're actually making progress in what you're doing with these kids? Because we were working with children, and as many of you know, um, when you're working with a, a child in particular who has a severe communication impairment needing augmentative communication, We're not talking about seeing them for a few weeks and fixing the problem. It really is ongoing. And we were seeing children, in addition to the services that they were receiving in their school program for years and years and years, and we were really being challenged by um, third-party reimbursement organizations saying, come on, really, what, where's the end? So, um, I, along with uh, my colleagues at the Children's Hospital at the time, started looking at um, what was happening in the field more related to medicine. Um, And there were several things happening in in some disability areas. One of particular interest was for um, hearing impairment for children with Down syndrome. And looking at a what was called at the time, and I think still is, a care path or continuum of care so that um, you really are establishing a baseline of performance. And this could be with hearing impairment. It could be with any sort of disorder. And in fact, you could take any kind of disorder or disability and use the same analogy. You look at what the person presents with in terms of their ability or disability at the time. You then determine what is the course of intervention And you look at the course of intervention options based on the evidence that's there in terms of the outcomes. You select the appropriate intervention strategies. You implement those strategies. You then reassess progress or performance related to the desired outcome, whatever that may be. Um, And then you make modifications in terms of your um, treatment or intervention. And in essence, I think that's what we were looking at, but not doing a very good job at it with the children that we were working with at the time. We were kind of randomly selecting um, intervention goals and treatment strategies that we thought would make a difference in terms of what we were hoping was um, ultimate communicative competence, but we really hadn't defined what communicative competence was very, very clearly. We hadn't really looked at what are the steps that are necessary in order to achieve that, and then looked at where children were on that sort of continuum of 
uh, development towards that outcome. And so we really kind of put our heads together and through a lot of um, looking through the literature and working with colleagues, came up with a continuum and utilized what had been out there for, you know, a while, which was Janice Light's uh, work in the area of defining communicative competence. Mm -hmm. And she first um, wrote about that in 1989. And I just wanted to mention that she just recently um, in the latest AAC, or actually not the latest, but the March, I guess it might be the latest March um, issue of the AAC journal, um, talked about a new definition for a new era of communication. And she was talking about communicative competence. And when I saw this article, I thought, oh, no, what if she's going to change her whole, you know, theoretical perspective about communicative competence? And all these years, we've worked off of her original, you know, themes of operational, linguistic, social, strategic competence. And now she's going to change it. And I was delighted to read her article where it basically said we're not changing uh, you know what we're defining in terms of those four areas we're just expanding them because the technology has changed so much over the past few years that we really have to look at you know a broader spectrum of for example operational competence it's one thing to be competent in terms of operating your voice output system but what are the operational competencies related to using email or texting or you know all of, you know, um, cell phones, all of those kinds of things. So it's just taking those four competencies and just going a little bit deeper. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So that was kind of how we got started on this path of developing a continuum. What it, what it ended up being, Jeff, which, you know, we were delighted about, our department was delighted with it as well, is that for the first time we could really compare um, children and compare what they were doing irrespective perhaps sometimes of therapists. So what, you know, over the years, what we found was that, you know, sometimes parents would want to work with a particular therapist because they thought they were really good at whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we were able to do, once you, once you define the steps that are necessary to achieve competence and agree upon them, now you have a rubric upon which you can make comparisons so that, If I have a child who is functioning at, you know, X, Y, Z level in whatever competency area, another therapist can say, I know what that means. I know what this child is able to do versus me sort of more subjectively saying, well, you know, I have a child who's able to do this and can't do that. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if maybe you should be seeing him or whatever. So it really gave us a, a way to make some comparisons. We started making comparisons in terms of programs, in terms of um, learning environments, group versus individual. We were able to more objectively work with our colleagues in the schools by saying, okay, what is it that you can work on best in your environment versus what can we work on best? And here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? And using the same sort of um, criteria for determining that made it hugely different in terms of what we were able to accomplish. Well, it's a it's a good point because I I, I went back to your presentation uh, when I saw you when I first saw you around 2011, and you spoke on this topic. You talked about uh, this idea of just simply people talking about like those subjective terms and things like participation and what does participation really mean. Um, and 
you know, laying out this roadmap, I think you use the word roadmap several times in your presentation at my state's convention. Uh, you have to have that common uh, language with other therapists so you can go forward and continually assess where you are. Right. Uh, I think it is, you know, roadmap is what I have used in the past and, and still use in terms of really identifying, you know, where are we going? And we can't, uh, you know, there may be many ways to get to the, to the, you know, location, but you have to know what the map is that you're taking. You can't just go off and kind of do your own thing. We waste a lot of time um, when we do that. If we don't have the big picture or the roadmap, we waste a lot of time. And you know what? We've got, um, particularly for children, we don't have that much time. We don't have a lot of time to figure out what, you know, what we individually should be doing because we've never worked with a child like this. And so we don't know where they're functioning or what to expect. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for us to learn how to work with different devices. We have to really have uh, some direction. And we also have to have the big picture so that we can talk more objectively with family members and other people about what's necessary to get to that location, to get to that outcome. What do you have to do? And am I the one that can accomplish that? Maybe I'm not. You know, I, again, working in a, um, a clinical model for many years, I could do a lot of great things in terms of linguistic competence and operational competence, but I couldn't do very much in terms of social and strategic competence. I mean, you know, I can be fairly entertaining, I think, but, you know, kids just are not going to get into the social interactions that they would get into if they were in their classroom or a more natural environment or at home. Yeah, with peers so, or siblings or whatnot. Right. Yeah. So, that, you know, I think uh, you really have to have the big picture and participation really, you know, I think we, not that there's anything wrong with that. We, we want our, um, our AAC users to participate fully, but participation really isn't the end goal. It's, it's, well, it may be the outcome, but it's not what you have to do in order to get to the outcome. You can't just participate in order to learn how to participate. You have to learn what the tools are in order to enable participation. And I think sometimes I've been frustrated with um, myself, for sure, and colleagues where I think that if I can just get someone to participate in an activity that I've really accomplished a lot, and in fact, what I've done is really set up a child for kind of differentiated cause and effect responses, mm -hmm. what I really need to be working on is what are the skills that are necessary for that participation. And that's what I think the participation model that Buchelman and Miranda put forth several years ago is really talking mm -hmm. about. What are the skills that are necessary for AAC users to participate like their peers are able to participate. And trust me, when you really go into a classroom and look at what peers are able to do, they're not just making choices. Right. <laughs> I, now I have a question. Now I, I saw, you know, you know, when I saw you back in 2011, the first thing that went through my mind after your talk, or probably during your talk, is in talking about these four competencies, my thought was that, well, without thinking about ongoing assessments, without having a roadmap, my guess is that most of us, if we're thinking beyond participation, are probably stuck on the linguistic uh, domain. Would you say that would be the case uh, in your experience? Is that what you've seen? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, um, we as speech pathologists come at that naturally because that's where our training is mostly. You know, we really, that's, you know, we have lots of assessment tools that look at receptive and expressive language, and we get kind of wigged out because we can't adapt them very adequately for individuals who oh, can't talk. Um, and so I think that we do get stuck on the linguistic area. And what I think when we stop and think about it, we really are looking at is certainly the the social competencies of individuals. And that I think we kind of, as speech pathologists, we kind of combine that with the linguistic area, but it really is a very different area when you're talking about AAC users and how they're able to interact with others um, using an augmentative communication system is very different than it is with um, children who are able to communicate verbally. I've, I've also found that lots of times um, I've put off working on linguistic competencies because I've worked with a, a child who may have a really, really complicated physical condition and access to a device has been very challenging. And so I know that I've spent way too much time working with colleagues and um, others, family members as well, in terms of how a person is going to access a communication system and thinking that if we don't have good access, how can we possibly work on all these other things? Sure. And, and in fact, when you really start looking at, you know, what is the potential? And as as speech therapists, we do this all the time. We look at what our what our goals are and how we feel a person is going to be able to achieve those goals. And sometimes we make modifications. And I think that we need to think about sometimes we need to make some significant modifications in terms of how we ask a person to access a communication system in order for them to continue in their development in other areas of importance for them to... Now you're breaking up on me, Tracy. ...communicative competency, and those would be... Okay, sorry. And linguistic communication. I don't know what part you got about Yeah, about the last uh, 10 or 15 seconds. Okay. <laughs> so um, we need to be thinking more about... Um, what the person is able to do in terms of all the other areas of communicative competence right. and maybe provide more support in the area of operational competence. And by support, I'm talking about, you know, I, I just as a, a case example, I've worked with a young man. He is almost a young man now for at least 10 years and access has always been an issue. And over those 10 years, he's had at least two, maybe three, communication devices, because of course the new devices have better access. So let's try that. Mm -hmm. And what, and he still is not able to access the device very, very um, accurately. And so what we finally determined is that he really needs partner assisted access in order to use his system. And if we, if we ease up on the pressure for him to be independent or at least more accurate in terms of his access, what we're finding is his language is really amazing. He's able to do a lot with language and his social communication is incredible. And we've held him back thinking that, oh, we have to keep working on access all this time before we can do anything with language. So you can see how in working on one domain can help uh, progress in another. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, they're all interrelated for sure. 
Um, but the other piece to, you know, understanding these various different domains of communicative competence enables us to, first of all, be a little bit more competent in areas that we may not feel very comfortable in. As a speech pathologist, I've had the opportunity to work with some outstanding occupational therapists who do a great job in terms of access to communication devices. But when I'm kind of left alone and don't have their support, I really need to be able to go and look at what are the skills that are really necessary for access and how can I, in the work that I'm doing, facilitate that. And the same with uh, other therapists and teachers. They need to know more about areas that aren't necessarily their areas of expertise in order for them to understand and know what they can be working on at the same time. Yeah, and you you bring up another, just a big, big point that I, I've learned from your presentation and also um, the AAC communication profile, which you authored, uh, which we use at, at my school. And that is the importance of partners, communication partners. Um, so in your AAC communication profile, you put equal emphasis on the partners who are using their AAC system with the uh, student. Um, so we're not just talking about what the student or client can do. Uh, can you talk so, a little bit about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that um, we've, um, you, you know, we, we know that communication partners are important. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I don't think we do a very good job of identifying what their skills are and what they need to be doing in order to be good communication partners. You know one when you see one, but mm -hmm. you don't know how they got to be that way, sort of. Yeah. So what um, my colleagues and I tried to do several years ago was really look at communication partners and the role that they do play in terms of developing the individual's competencies. And, it, I mean, it's critical. It's critical in terms of, you know, access. It's critical in terms of social and strategic competence and linguistic competence. But, um, you know, we, we would see how um, a particular um, AAC user would do a much better job with one person than another. And, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise. Um, when we're talking about unaided communication and individuals who are nonverbal, we all the time are having parents say, yeah, well, I know what he means. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's sort of like, well, yeah, but how do you know? Well, because he, you know, turns his head this way or he makes that sound. And that's a system. It's an unaided AAC system, but they're using it. And the familiar communication partners and the communication partners that are able to understand that communication and respond appropriately are oftentimes the parents. Yeah. So it shouldn't be a surprise that, you know, communication partners are so critical. But again, I think it's a matter of us defining really what their role is, how we can work on their skills. And oftentimes, particularly in private practice where I go into um, children's homes, I spend a lot of time working with family members as communication partners in addition to the AAC user. In fact, sometimes I, I'm concerned that reimbursement is going to be a little bit challenged because my, my therapy session involves you know, 15 minutes with the user and 45 minutes with his brother. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, that's you know, that, that has to be what we look at. We can't, we can't eliminate the concept of communication partners. And that's challenging 
for our colleagues like you that are in the schools. I mean, you can look at peers and you can look at teachers, but I know you don't have as much access maybe to family members as you sometimes would like. Yeah, that's true. And being able to say what, what is important for them to do, you know, a simple concept that we as speech pathologists um, learned a long time ago and all of us need to continue to work on it is the concept of wait time. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you, how do you just keep quiet for a little bit and wait for the person to come out with the response? Well, you know, parents, parents haven't gone to AAC school and they don't know about wait time. Yeah. And all those, and not only that, but you brought a story. I think I told you this, uh, when I saw you a month ago about the, uh, student who, uh, in my school who is homebound and I went over there, you know, went over to his house, a little home visit. And I really, you know, never really had that time to train or have a meaningful conversation with parents about using his device. And, you know, lo, lo and behold, I get into the house or apartment and his device is sitting in the corner. And once it was turned on and activated, uh, I saw a lot of overprompting. And again, you can't blame the parents because one of the things that I've seen over time is that that's just a natural uh, inclination that anybody would have. I think the the gut response for anyone using being a partner, communication partner, is just to tell the other person what to say without thinking about that operational competency or or linguistic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that overprompting is, it, it is very, very natural. I think that, um, you know, it, it's just the thing that, <clears throat> excuse me, parents really want to do. And it's not just parents, it's everybody. But I just have a quick story to tell you about, um, and you may have heard me say tell you this story once before, but I had a little girl that I was working with, and she was doing a really nice job with her communication system. And it was the summertime, and her mom was always, her mom brought her to the clinic for therapy, and she was always in the room, and she was always, always participated with us in our sessions. And um, they were going to take a trip, and it was going to be a family reunion, and um, they were going to visit um, you know, a, an extended family. And so we spent some time talking about family members. And in fact, I think we had like a whole page or something of, you know, individual family members so that she could, you know, say their names if she wanted to and all of that. And three weeks later, she came back from her trip and, um, you know, I said, well, so how did it go? And mom said, oh, we had a great time. And I said, well, so how did she do with her communication system? And she said, oh, we didn't take her communication system. We didn't want to have it get messed up. <laughs> and I just, I mean, I just about died. I thought, yeah. oh, no. And and that was where, you know, I had implemented the um, the profile that you're talking about. And I said to mom, look, here's where your daughter is functioning operationally, linguistically, but socially we need some work. Where do you think that, where do you think we could work on that? Um, and mom said, oh, I guess that we really needed to take the system right. And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would have been nice. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think to do that, of course, before they left on the trip. Yeah, that would have been helpful. Well, yeah. at least at least she saw the light. And hopefully that didn't happen again. Um, but oh. yeah, uh, you know, the, the other thing I wanted to mention is I remember even going to another um, AAC seminar where the focus was, I can't remember the title, something like, don't be, don't be the programmer or something like that. And the, the gist of the talk was, you can't be as the SLP, 
the only person responsible for programming the device or setting things up that other people have to learn. And, you know, it's just one of many aspects, I think, of the assessment that you can learn about. You just you learn a lot about yourself and I think your internal biases. But I look at my own school and I know that right now, most of the programming and for most of the day-to-day operational kind of stuff, I'm the guy responsible. So if there's a, a word that's uh, a teacher or someone wants in there, if there is a change in motor plan or positioning, that's what they come to me. You know, I'll tell you a funny, quick little for the audience. What I think the staff has become really good at is figuring out how to, tur- how to turn the volume up and down. <laughs> that's what they get to <laughs> going to the system settings and really quickly. <laughs> yeah. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. Oh, dear. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like you can, you can learn so much about yourself and, and what, you know, what, what, what you're thinking going into this whole, whole process. I mean, now the downside, I, if there is one, uh, to really doing an in-depth analysis or assessment on an ongoing process is the time commitment. And you, you bring this up in your presentation. Uh, it's a labor intensive process. Uh, it, it, and if you have multiple students or, uh, or kids on your on your caseload, and you're having to meet as a team with the occupational therapist, uh, maybe special education teacher, uh, physical therapist, you know, all the other related service people. It's this is a it's a process, right? Absolutely, and and it should be. I mean, we know in terms of best practice that a team approach is the best way to achieve um, not only assessment but ongoing um, outcome, you know, outcome development and and uh, performance outcomes in the areas where we're dealing with these individuals, because although, you know, some um, people don't have real significant issues with access, they probably still have some motor issues and they maybe have some visual motor issues and they've got all kinds of things that, you know, very rarely have I ever worked with a child that doesn't have a whole crew of specialists working with them. And we know that AAC assessment and intervention is best achieved with the coordinated efforts of all of these team members. But we also know that it's almost impossible. And as our caseloads get larger and the time that we have gets more diminished with individual cases, that's more and more challenging. So we have to find a way that we can address that. And I think one way that, you know, again, I found is to be able to have a little bit of information um, from from these individuals ongoingly, so that I may not have time to meet with the occupational therapist, you know, every week or every month, even or every six months, even. But if they're working with the same rubric that I'm using, they can provide input in terms of where a person is functioning and give me that information, and I know where the person is. So again, you know, I think it doesn't matter, you know, you've mentioned the AAC profile, that's the tool that I've used and developed, but there are other tools out there or individual teams can develop their own rubric and just say, okay, this is what we're going to do in terms of knowing where people are functioning in all of these areas. And once you, once you all agree to that, it doesn't become as overwhelming to think, oh, my gosh, I have to connect with the occupational therapist or with the parents or whomever in order to figure out where this person is functioning because they can tell you where they're functioning. They yeah. can say, this is where I find this person functioning in this environment with this communication partner and in this area. Now, 
if that isn't the area or the communication partner that you're working with or need information on, you're going to have to look at the same scale in those different environments and with those different people. But at least you're looking at the same thing and you're not saying, well, this person thinks that they were doing this, but this person thinks that they weren't. And it's, it's just too, you know, it's, it's just too subjective. It is. You know, that brings up a related question, I guess. What do you, what happens when you, as one provider, have a disagreement with another who's, you're completing uh, your own rubric or the AC communication profile, and you have different opinions as to, uh, let's just say, for example, um, you know, we're providing consistent models, uh, language modeling, and uh, I, as a speech pathologist, might be saying uh, sometimes, and the other, maybe uh, another staff member is saying frequently. I mean, does that come up with you if you've got that question? Yeah, it does come up. And um, in fact, uh, it was very um, important at one point where I ended up um, having a particular level of functioning for a, a child in the area of um, operational competence. And the school team had a totally different level of functioning. And I had worked with the speech therapist um, and she was administering this tool in school, and it turned out that when we got our heads together, what was happening was that the she was looking, or the the paraprofessionals were being the communication partners in that particular instance, and they were providing a whole bucket full of prompting, mm-hmm. and nobody really knew that they were doing that. They didn't know that they were doing it, and so they felt that the person, the child, was functioning at a much higher level in terms of operational competence than I did, and the reason was because they were providing a ton of prompting, but nobody really knew that until they started looking at it. So what I've found is when there is that discrepancy, what that allows me to do in a more objective way other than, you know, having the school speech therapist say, oh, sure, yeah. Now you're breaking up a little bit. Well, she can do that and her bells aren't ringing. She can do that in her environment where the school bells aren't ringing and the kids aren't running around. But in the real world, that doesn't happen. And I can't say, oh, well, the school speech therapist just doesn't give it enough time, blah, blah, blah. What we can really do then is say, why is there this discrepancy? Mm-hmm. Why are we feeling that this person is able to do to perform differently in different environments? And what what about the environments are different? And and beyond that, okay, so if they're functioning at a higher level in one environment, that's great for us to know because now we know that at least there's that potential. Mm-hmm. Very rarely have I found that um if we're using the same sort of system of evaluating kids and assessing performance, very rarely have I found that the that there's a problem with somebody with some person's interpretation of performance. In fact, it's a situation of increased prompting availability, a different learning environment, different communication partners. And it's not just that somebody scores something differently. So it really sounds like you have to talk things through and really go deeper into what are some of the assumptions you might have about why you think the competency is where it's at versus what another person's thinking. Yes, but it enables you to do it in a way that's more objective and you're not finger pointing. Yes, and that's uh, that's a that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an ongoing hassle with private practice and school speech therapists. I mean, you know, there's always finger pointing by by both by both parties 
at the other saying they don't know what they're doing, you don't have a realistic environment, and so on. And what it enables you to do is to say, okay, let's take a look at this. We obviously have some differing um, results here. What, what's the reason behind it? And finding those reasons is critical because, I mean, think of the person who's the communication user. Think of how they must feel being able to be more competent in one area with their device versus not being as competent in another area with their device or with another person. And they're kind of, you know, they're sort of subject to our convenience, if you will, or our programming. Well, you can be competent with me because you get to be in a one-on-one environment, but you can't be competent in school because it's too noisy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, I mean... You know, this speaks to the whole issue of abandonment, system abandonment. Yeah. And I think that, you know, lots of times we find that when kids change grade levels or classrooms or therapists or whatever, um, you know, we find a discrepancy in what they're able to do with their communication devices. And lots of times we think, oh, well, you know, maybe we need a new device. It's about time and there are newer devices out there and we could be doing more with this device, et cetera. But really, it's their environment. It's the people in their environment. And they're just subject to what happens to them. Um, unfortunately, they're you know, unable oftentimes to be able to say, hey, this system works just fine if you just give me a little more time to talk. Well, you know, really, I think what, you know, your, what your talk about ongoing assessments and, you know, the AAC communication profile it it really does speak to that larger issue, and you know we we talked about this um, a month ago. That the most important, you know, I, I when you look at the whole process of uh, AAC from device selection to implementation from beginning to start, the hardest part it's not choo- it's not you know choosing what language representation system you want to use, what device, what color case, all that little all those little things. I mean, they're important. But it's what happens afterwards. I think that's um, that's where the rubber hits the road to me. Well, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they're, the AAC systems are just, you know, dumb boxes that we tell what to do. And um, all of those all of those things that you mentioned are important. And the language representation system sometimes is incredibly important. But how the person uses it and how they develop competencies over time is is where we end up spending the majority of our time and our energy. And I think we have to be very, very um, serious about what we're doing with people once they get communication systems. You know, we all know it's not the magic pill just now that they have a communication device. Now everything's going to be fine. We all know that. But we have to be more diligent in what we're trying to do ongoingly with people. And we can't be jumping around because these are, these are people who we owe it to them to develop language to the highest level that they can to develop communicative competence in all areas that are required for competency at the highest level possible and not um, you, you know, they they should not be subject to our to our time, our level of experience or our understanding. Mm-hmm. Are you breaking up a little bit again? It's it's not it's not fair to them. 
And it's in the long run, it's a disservice to individuals as well as to our profession and our practice area and the whole field of AAC. What good is it? And in fact, I think we've seen sometimes insurance companies become reluctant to fund communication devices because we don't have a lot of success stories. Mm-hmm. And we can't prove, oh, well, we are making progress. How do we prove that? Well, they passed five objectives. Okay. Are those five objectives related to what it really is going to take to be more competent in terms of communication? Or are they related to things that were important for them to do during that particular time frame or school year or whatever? And if we are not working on the things that are going to ultimately make a difference and be life-changing for the individual with the AAC system, we're wasting their time and we're wasting our time and we're wasting a lot of resources. So it's a serious it's a serious time um, for us to be really looking at the whole process of intervention and how we determine progress and what we do next. Very true. Well, I think that's a good point to end on today. Um, I just wanted to mention uh, a place where folks out there can find you if they wanted to get a hold of you, learn more about you and your work. I have, you, People are welcome to be in touch with me via email. And it's just basically Kovac Tracy at AOL.com. That's K-O-V-A-C-H-R-A-C-Y at AOL.com. Feel free to be in touch with me that way. Okay. If anybody is interested in the um, AAC profile, you can look at it through Lingua Systems. Right. Lingua Systems is, yeah, that's just LinguaSystems.com, I believe. That's but correct. I'll link to that on the, uh, the show notes as well. Um, okay. So, Tracy, thanks so much for being a guest on the show today. Thanks, Jeff. It was a pleasure. All right. That about wraps things up for today's episode. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Tracy Kovac, for taking the time out of her busy schedule to talk about ongoing assessments and AAC. And good luck, Tracy, on your trip to Australia. Don't forget to check out the podcast website at conversationsinspeech.com for show notes and links. You can send me feedback about today's episode, either by posting a comment on the website or by emailing emailing me directly at jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, and I put links up on the website as well. At the website, you can also enter your email if you want to receive alerts about upcoming episodes and possibly occasional spam. Just kidding about that one. Thanks for listening and see you next time.